and welcome to the MHDD Crossroads podcast. October is National Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we'll be speaking about sensitive topics throughout the episode, such as abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Broadly defined, abuse is any act or failure to act resulting in physical or emotional harm or death. Neglect is failing to provide care, food, shelter, and other basic necessities. This can be by a parent, guardian, caregiver, and even extends to self-neglect. Exploitation refers to unjustly using a vulnerable person's funds, credit, or assets either through deception or intimidation. Legal definitions can vary from state to state. In addition to this, people with disabilities can also experience abuse in other ways. Some examples include intentional damage to or being denied access to their assistive technology, such as wheelchairs and communication devices, or being forced to take too much medication or their medication being altered or withheld. So hello everyone and thank you for tuning in to the Mental Health Crossroads podcast. My name is Tatiana Perlo. I'm really excited to be hosting this episode on domestic violence and individuals with disabilities and that I get to speak with our two guests today, which are Jill Anderson, who is the executive director of CAPSA, which stands for Citizens Against Physical and Sexual Assault, and it's a domestic violence, sexual abuse, and rape recovery center in Northern Utah. And we also have Cheryl Atwood, who is the executive director of Options for Independence and Independent Living Center, which is also located in Northern Utah. Thanks for joining me today, guys. So thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Starting off, do you guys mind telling our listeners a bit more about CAPSA and options where you work, such as like what services you guys offer and how you two came to start working together? Sure, I'll start. Um, so CAPSA is, as you mentioned, the Domestic Violence and Rape Recovery Center serving Cache County and the Bear Lake area. And our services um, range from crisis intervention through our 24-hour crisis line and mobile response team, all the way through long-term housing. Um, we, pro- we provide long-term um, trauma-informed therapy services to help people recover from and deal with the trauma that they've experienced. So other services, you know, in between those, you know, short-term crisis intervention and long-term help is we do have an emergency shelter. I think that's the the most common thing people think of when they think about CAPSA is our shelter, but there we do provide a range of services supporting survivors. Thank you. And Options for Independence, as you mentioned, also is the a Center for Independent Living. We are non-residential, even though it sounds like maybe we provide residential services, we don't. Um, there are six Centers for Independent Living in Utah, and we cover Catch, Rich, and Box other counties. Our services are really intended to help people with disabilities of all ages, with all types of disabilities, to um, become or remain or increase their independence in whatever way Uh, is important to them. And we do that through goal setting. Uh, We do that through finding services that are already in the community to help them. And if there aren't any services, creating those services within our own organization. We have services for youth. We have services specifically for people who are 55 and older with vision loss. We help with nursing facility transition and diversion. We have a community integration program that's awesome because they get to do all the fun things out in the community. So transportation and 
access to the community can be difficult. So we provide that transportation and the opportunities for people to just enjoy everyday, everyday things that are happening out, out in the world. Um, we do that mostly in our own service area, but we have to travel to Salt Lake and often from time to time. It sounds like you both offer a wide array of services. And I remember Jill mentioning that in the past year, you guys have collaborated together, I think with your services. Can you tell me a little bit how you guys have done that together? Yeah, so, um, you know, I would say more than a decade, well, maybe even almost 20 years, time goes by fast. Um, I, we've been working together informally for many, many years, um, trying to individually support the, the specialties that we work with. And about, um, what would you say, Cheryl, 12 to 14 years ago, yeah. there was an opportunity for us to apply for funding and be more intentional about our collaborative work together. And so, you know, um, in, as far as CAPSA goes, we were serving people with disabilities. We just weren't doing it real well and um, realized that we needed to rely on the experts in our community that that's their you know their uh, their expertise it's their whole mission and goal is to serve those folks and we just can't be the experts in everything and we needed to partner with experts to help us um, achieve those goals and so we launched on a pretty intensive um, collaboration project um, where I kind of describe it as this, just this side of merging organizations without actually merging. <laughs> so we worked really hard to um, kind of go into each other's organizations or, or into our each other's houses, if you will, um, looking in each other's cupboards and under the rugs and, and behind the cabinets and all of that, just to fully understand what the capacities are what our philosophies are, um, even, you know, the term victim in our world was pretty commonplace. And in the world of disabilities, that's it has a negative connotation. And so even the language that we use and they use and kind of getting on the same page um, took a whole lot of time and energy sitting around the table to really, um, you know, start this collaborative project moving forward so that we could really um, partner using each other's expertise to help individuals. And at options, we, we realized that um, statistically people with disabilities experience violence and sexual assault at a much higher rate than maybe, you know, other populations. And so we knew that, and we knew that we were serving people who had experienced violence and sexual assault we were too afraid to ask the hard questions and we were afraid if we asked them in a you know in a not informed way that we might do more harm than good and so we weren't really asking people about their past um, experience with violence um, and uh, we learned really early on how afraid our staff was of that i mean there was real fear about harming somebody by asking in the wrong way or saying the wrong thing and by collaborating with CAPSA and understanding um, what the needs of victims are, and CAPS understanding what the needs of people with disabilities are, we were able to better come together and provide the comprehensive services that are needed. And that fear is gone. My staff at Options is very ready to respond to 
anybody that walks through our door. And as we became more informed and we started asking those questions, people open up and, and we're so much better able to help them through collaborating, collaborating with CAPSA because um, that fear has gone on our, on our side. And um, we've, had, we've had instances where people have told us really hard things and it's amazing when you're ready to respond how you can sit there and you can say, you know what, I'm really sorry that happened to you. Now let's get you the help you need so that you can move on, you know, and, and really be independent because sometimes that's what holds people back as well is that that experience from earlier in life, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's something our staff too were afraid of. How do I, there are so many different types of disabilities and and different needs that they have and how on earth am I going to meet all of those needs and so it, it was really great to have options come in and train our staff um, on the basics um, on what they needed to know you know in the crisis or that initial um, interaction with someone and then just to reassure them that we have a really close partner that can be that expert so Let's get let's um, look at our programming and make sure that we're not setting up barriers, not just those physical barriers. I think that's a lot of times what people think about when they think you're serving people with disabilities. Oh, you've eliminated those physical barriers. Mm-hmm. And yes, we've worked really hard to do that as well. But a lot of it was programming and really looking at are we reducing those barriers. So we did that. And then we said beyond that. You have staff at your fingertips that can that are the experts that can help you know partner and collaborate and create those wraparound services for someone, so that our staff who are the experts in helping people recover from trauma can focus on their expertise um, and and let options do their their piece as well. You both said something that I really loved hearing is acknowledging that. You know, we're not always the expert. You can be really good in one area, but maybe you don't understand all the pieces around it. And, you know, being scared to ask those questions, like I've experienced that in my own job a lot, you know, and sometimes when you're scared to ask those questions, you just end up staying quiet. And well, then you're not, you're not learning anything. You're not helping yourself or like the people that you're trying to serve as well as you could be. If you have reason to believe that a vulnerable adult is or has been abused, neglected, or exploited, you may be required to report it. Definitions of a vulnerable adult vary by state, and each state has its own mandatory reporting requirements. Please visit the resources in our show notes to learn more about your state's guidelines and how to report. I was wondering if you guys could tell me a bit more like, about different kinds of abuse and you know, is it different? Like if you're working with an individual with a disability, you know, is abuse happening in different forms? Does it look differently than sometimes when it happens to individuals that don't have disabilities? I, I would say a lot of times it looks the same, but I think that there are people with disabilities who are definitely more at risk because of their disability. So it might be um, it might be easier to take advantage of them and they may not have a way to escape from it, if that kind of makes sense. Say if you're somebody who needs someone to help you get in and out of bed every day and that person is 
abusing you, taking advantage of you in any way, you may not have the physical ability to get out of that abuse. And you may be too afraid to say anything about it because what if somebody, what if nobody else comes to help you? If this is, what if you feel like this is the only person in the whole world that's going to stay and help you do those daily living skills that you need help with? So I think there's definitely more, more vulnerability, but the abuse is, it's, you know, it's financial, it's physical, it's emotional. All of those same things that happen in, in any type of abuse happen to people with disabilities. I just think they're more vulnerable to the abuse. I remember um, at one point during the collaboration, we shared our, this, some of the safety planning tools that we use with survivors. And options staff were really incredible in helping us think through things that we may not explore with survivors, such as their, the assistive technology that they use, how, how a, an abuser might you know, take that away for them or use that to further isolate and control. Um, we know that the dynamics around domestic violence and sexual abuse are power and control. And so if someone relies on assistive technology or transportation needs um, and, and how abusers might use that to, it's just another tool that abusers can use to isolate and control and, um, you know, manipulate survivors in doing what they want. And it was really eye-opening and really expanded um, the thought process that our advocates have when they sit down with someone and do safety planning. Cheryl, you touched on this a little bit, because um, I was going to ask, like, what factors make people with disabilities more likely to experience domestic violence? And then I've noticed that Sometimes it seems like the factors that make them more likely to experience it can also be barriers that would keep them from maybe reporting or seeking help or like just seeking services. Is there anything that you can pinpoint maybe that you've seen often as being a barrier for people with disabilities wanting to report or seeking services? I think it's, I think it's the fear of um, what will happen. I, I, I honestly think that you know, that power and control that Jill mentioned, it, it's just very, um, I think that people with disabilities are just more, like I said before, more vulnerable. And so I think what keeps them from reporting is the fear of what's gonna happen if I report. Um, maybe, maybe you're a young person and you're 25 years old and you're being abused at home. Um, but if you have, maybe you're on the autism spectrum or you have a um, developmental cognitive disability, that person may not have the ability to just move away, right? You may not have the ability to get out of that situation and have somewhere else safe to go. So I think sometimes that's it, that they're just, and maybe, maybe they're isolated and they don't have anyone that they can really share that with. And so that's what we try to do here is build those relationships so they feel safe. And we had an instance recently that seemed like abuse, like from our end and what we were being told is this person was being abused. But in reality, they, they had strong feelings about what they wanted to do and their parents were afraid to let them do it. And this was an adult 
And thank goodness her parents didn't have guardianship and she was able to make decisions on her own. But I think she felt like her parents were trying to stop her from doing what she wanted to. Um, and so she was, she was making, like for us, it sounded like abuse. So we investigated that further. And in reality, what it was, is just that fear. Um, her, her just trying to pull away and her parents trying to keep her there and, and protect her. And so I think there's all of those dynamics going to it. And you've got to have the relationship so that you can have the hard conversations. Um, and you can't, those, those are difficult conversations to have and it takes time. The relationship building is just critical or people are not going to share anything with you. Yeah, that's so true. That's definitely a big barrier that I think maybe you would have to overcome at both of your agencies is developing that relationship because that's a hard thing to talk about in general. You know, even with people that you are close to or maybe you're going to be scared of being judged. So to go somewhere and to have, you know, people respond and not be judgmental, I think helps a lot. Depending on someone's disability, they may not even know that they're being abused. And this is something that can be really hard to know. Like on our side or, or even in CAPSAs, it's like, if maybe they don't have the verbal skills to tell you that they're being abused, you have to look for other, other things that, that point to abuse or neglect or exploitation or whatever's happening. Um, so that's also very difficult, I think, with people with disabilities. It's just that level of someone's ability to even share with you what's happening and to even understand sometimes if that's abuse depending on the situation. Can you expand on it a little bit? Because I like to think that people listening in, it's like, it's a wide audience. You know, we do have maybe some providers listening, but we have people with disabilities also listening. And maybe like they're asking those questions and they don't know what counts as abuse. Like you mentioned earlier, financial abuse. I know, you know, not everybody understands what financial abuse is. Can you explain it a little bit more so maybe someone listening feels like they understand it better? So financial exploitation is typically what it's called. And that's when somebody is taking money from you that doesn't belong to them. But I mean, that's just the, the bottom line of it. Um, we've actually seen that a lot here. We've actually seen a lot of financial exploitation. It, we've seen it more a, a young, among maybe uh, senior folks who have somebody that is helping them with their banking, but they're helping themselves to the money and they're not that money isn't going to help that that individual who really needs it and so i we've actually seen that gosh i can think of at least six or seven times that we've seen um, it's typically a family member that's helping them with their finances and they are more than happy to go to the bank and take grandma's check you know seen that firsthand and then grandma's left with no money or the um, social security checks are deposited, but somebody else has access to the account and the money's just gone. We've actually seen that more often than I even care to think about. And from my understanding, it's a huge problem among our senior adults with or without disabilities just because of age. But I've also seen it with, with youth um, young, I guess they're not youth anymore because, you know, they're past 18 years old. They're still living at home and their parents or guardians or somebody is controlling their money and not letting them have access to it. And that that's tough because 
you know, I could charge one of my kids to come live with me rent. And so sometimes it might be put that way that, hey, you have to pay rent to live here now that you're over 18. I mean, there's all kinds of things. That's that's where the relationship, that's where those um, conversations about what is really happening. And it, it can be hard to really understand what those dynamics are. Another one that I think sometimes isn't completely understood, and I read about how people with disabilities are more likely to experience sexual abuse. The numbers were really sad. Um, so Jill, CAFSA has a lot of like resources that I've seen before and they explain all the types of abuse. And sometimes you're gonna read down a list and you're not even gonna realize, oh, I didn't know that was an example, but I didn't know I was experiencing that. Can you touch on a little bit more like what sexual abuse can look like? Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, even sexual abuse is really about power and control. Um, and so if you start from that basis, you can start to understand where this all um, comes from. But um, sexual abuse, and often, um, especially in rural areas, it is perpetrated by somebody the victim knows. So a lot of folks hear the word rape or sexual assault and thinks it's a stranger, that the victim was attacked on the street. but what we know from statistics, um, and especially in our area, is that it's typically perpetrated by someone that you know. And so when you think about folks with disabilities, oftentimes having a caretaker, someone assists them, and they, are, um, they work together closely and um, start to take advantage. Um, it often starts with grooming techniques, and they just kind of push the boundaries of that individual to see how far they can go, how far the person will let them. And if it's someone that you know and love and trust and that has been a caretaker of you, it can be very confusing um, and, and uncertain if what you're experiencing really is that. And lots of blame we see that it's somehow my fault, um, that something I did or didn't do. And um, and I think the biggest message that we want to send to folks is it's never your fault. Um, and that, that this is a common um, thing that happens and that you're not alone and that we are here to help with that. Thank you. Uh, here's one I think I would like to hear both of you touch on maybe if you have some thoughts on it. Um, do you think that law enforcement or legal representatives or other services sometimes treat people with disabilities differently like when they do report abuse and in the ways that they respond to those cases? You know, I, I think that's an interesting question um, in, in this time in our, um, in our nation's history and the, the national movements that are happening. And I, I've thought a lot about that um, in terms of you know, just using CAPS and options collaboration and partnership as an example, we can't be experts in everything. And so finding ways, you know, the, the expectation that law enforcement can respond to every individual different situation perfectly um, is kind of in my mind an unrealistic expectation. And if, if there are ways that we can that you can find these experts in the community and partner them um, up with law enforcement 
I think that we're going to have better results um, as a community. You know, one example that um, CAPSA has done recently with law enforcement is we implemented a program called the Lethality Assessment Protocol, where it gives law enforcement a tool and 11 questions that they ask on the scene to identify those cases that are at highest risk for death, for homicide. And immediately the protocol is, is that they contact CAPS's crisis line and connect the victim with an advocate immediately, right there on the scene. So law enforcement don't then have to be experts um, in safety planning and getting them connected with, with resources and experts. And you know, one of the recent things, and I'll let Cheryl expand on this, that we'd really like to do is take this collaboration that CAPS and Options have and work hand in, figure out a way or a tool or some kind of collaboration project to work hand in hand with law enforcement so that they can easily connect individuals with disabilities to who are also experiencing violence to the experts in the community. They do their, what they're experts at, and that is protecting the community and then those additional needs that someone has, whether it's mental health or disabilities or um, survivors of domestic violence, you get them connected to those resources in the community. Yes, I'm so excited about the next couple of years that we're going to spend working with law enforcement. If they'll let us, <laughs> we've got to convince them that we have awesome things to share and that they need us. And that's, that's pretty exciting to think about. That is exciting. It, it's going to take, you know, I think the best response usually is like a multidisciplinary approach. You know, you take people from all these different areas and know what they're doing and like come together to like really meet the needs as best as we can. I like that you guys are trying to do that. And it looks like you've started doing that already, even just like with each other. In the context of first responders and disability, we want to provide some additional information for our listeners. Not everybody has a negative encounter with law enforcement, but some people have different levels of comfort with law enforcement. For context, complete data is not collected on use of force by law enforcement, but estimates of use of force range from a low of 27% to a high of 81% in police encounters with disabled civilians, according to a report from the Ruderman Family Foundation. Also, half of people killed by police have a disability as reported by the National Alliance on Mental Illness and the Ruderman Foundation. Lack of training, lack of transparency, and lack of accountability contribute to this issue as stated by the United States Commission on Civil Rights. We have linked these resources below in addition to a website that has information on common misunderstandings police have about people with IDD. This website also has training resources for law enforcement. We encourage you to familiarize yourself with other crisis response resources in your state as an alternative to calling the police in a suspected case of domestic violence or crisis involving a person with a disability. For example, Adult Protective Services, a crisis response service like CAPSA, or the Utah Crisis Hotline, and Mobile Crisis Outreach Team are other options we have in Utah, all of which we have linked below, and there are similar services available nationally. Um, what are some mental health impacts that you see in cases of abuse? Oh, where to start? You know, that's why we have a, a clinical department that, that specializes in how to help people recover from trauma. Um, you know, 
a lot of it is there's a lot of shame, um, unfortunately, still centered around um, domestic violence and sexual abuse. Um, a lot of blaming, blaming themselves, a lot of um, similar dynamics that you see with um, post-traumatic stress disorder, war victims. Um, you think about the most basic uh, need we all have is a safe place to go at the end of the day. That's where we go to recharge and unwind and kind of re, um, you know, recharge ourselves to, to start the next day. But if you're going home to a war zone, um, those same trauma um, symptoms come out similar to PTSD. And in fact, domestic violence victims are diagnosed quite a bit of time with PTSD. And so when I think about, um, you know, the individuals that we serve that also have disabilities and are having to overcome those along with, um, you know, figuring out ways to get those needs met along with the trauma and not having even your most basic need of a safe home to go to. Um, it's uh, oftentimes takes a long time to heal from that. And, and that's what our experts are. In fact, um, one of the positions that we added on our clinical team was uh, a therapist who understands how to work with individuals with you know, cognitive disabilities and autism and other um, approaches and using those, mo those therapy modalities with individuals that have those disabilities. Um, because we want to make sure that that is also, that healing is also accessible for those folks as well. That is a great service that you guys offer and how, you know, maybe CAPS services can help people get out of those situations also, but to keep following up with them afterwards, I think that's what people are worried about. If I do report, who's going to actually keep talking to me afterwards? Like, what am I going to do? And it's so important too, because a lot of times, like with abuse, like you're saying, you don't have that safe home environment sometimes. And, you know, I don't think it's true for everybody, but in a lot of cases when, if you don't have that safe environment, you might not be experiencing, you know, maybe all those like mental health symptoms. And then when you are in a safe place, it's going to come down on you. And that's when you could really use somebody to be talking to, you know, about what happened. So this kind of leads me a little bit into my next question because I think a sad reality that we've possibly like heard of or seen is when agencies, sometimes because of lack of funding, they're not able to keep offering like the same services or in some cases even have to close down. Uh, what is something that you've each learned about sustainability and making sure that you can keep offering all those services to people? You have to do good work and you have to be able to show politically that you do good work. <laughs> you have to be able to go to the state capitol and tell your legislators the good work that you do and you have to be able to show them why it matters. I know for us, um, like I said, there's six centers for independent living in Utah and we're under the Department of Workforce Services. But we're each private nonprofits and the grants that we get through the state of Utah are really important to us. And being able to go and know your legislators and say, look at what we can do with the money that you give us. Um, it's huge. It, for us, it's, it's, it's our main source. We get most of our funding statewide we, or from the state. We get a, a good chunk from federal because Centers for Independent Living are federally mandated. So you just have to do the good work and you have to do the things you say you're gonna do and you have to be innovative and you have to go after grants that 
Caxa and I have done together where um, you see the need and there's a grant that meets that need and you actually write all the right words and say all the right things that they want to hear, I guess. I don't know. Grants are interesting. And you get awarded that money and then you do more good things with it. Yeah, I would add to that um, what Cheryl was saying about being able to share the good work that you're doing and the impact that you have on individuals' lives with the legislature, but also the community. You know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about lately is um, because of CAPSA, a large majority of our community does not know the extent of domestic violence and sexual abuse happening in our community. Um, because we just quietly go about helping survivors. And um, so I think it's really important that the community understand the benefit and value. Um, we also, you know, rely a lot on state, primarily federal um, grants, but we rely a lot on our community and private donations um, and, and support that way. We just couldn't do it without that. So I think it's really just sharing doing the good start by doing the good work and really you know being laser focused on making sure that your programs are really well designed for a number of individuals a lot of marginalized individuals disability being one of those um, and then sharing that with the community you know one of the questions you asked was what are the barriers to individuals with disabilities reaching out um, we struggle letting the community know that we're here and available anyway. And if you're isolated and your world is really small, like it is often for individuals with disabilities, you don't have access to that mainstream information that these services are available and they're available for you too. And we can make this work for you too, even though um, you might need some some accessibility accommodations that we can make for you. But we will work very hard <laughs> with our expert partners like Options to make sure that you have access. You guys have shared a lot of really great information. And I wanna, I guess, ask one more question that, you know, maybe provide some more information that people would really like taking away from this. What are some things that you guys think people should know to help them better respond you know, if someone with a disability does disclose to them that they are experiencing abuse, and this can be, you know, friends, family, law enforcement, or mental health professionals. It, it, that, that question seems like a really simple question, but it's actually one of the most important questions I think you could ask. Um, and it's simple. I believe you. Um, I think a lot of people don't reach out for help because they don't think they'll be believed. And so any, if anyone reaches out to you it, and how you respond as an individual is so critical and that critical piece is you just starting to say by saying, I believe you. I'm so sorry this happened to you. How can I help? Those three simple phrases can be the most critical in terms of starting that person down a path of healing. And I, I just cannot echo that enough. When we started this collaboration back in 2007 or whenever it was, um, if you would have asked me how to respond, I, I wouldn't have known. 
And then I have had a personal experience where I was able to respond just the way Jill just said, and it made all the difference in that situation. Absolutely made all the difference in that situation. And before I had the before I had the relationship with cats, I wouldn't have known how to respond. I think it's somehow we've got to get that out. I think for some people it would be natural to do that. For other people, you want to just jump right in with questions. You want to be like, who, how, when, how, what happened? But that's not what that person needs right at that moment. That can come later, and it may not even come from you. Maybe you're the safe person who just says, I believe you. I'm so sorry this happened. Let's get some help. Um, but right there when somebody discloses to you, they just need to know that they're believed, that somebody's listening and that somebody cares. And then from there, the hard work begins. But for them, the hardest thing they'll ever do is disclose that to someone. And I think so often just getting that, those words out, saying this happens, um, can be the hardest part for them. And then after that, there's a lot more hard work behind it, but at least now they've got a lot of support, hopefully. And if you don't get support, support from the first person you tell, tell someone else. If that first person says, oh, that didn't happen, or just brushes you off, find someone else that's safe to tell and keep telling until someone believes you. I appreciate those responses. I think that would be a great takeaway for someone to get from this. Is there anything else like before we stop that you guys wanted to add? One great service that has come from our collaboration that we must talk about is the fact that Options and CAPSA collaborate together to provide comprehensive sex education to youth and adults with disabilities. And that is not something that you can get in the school systems in Utah. And it is so very important to these young people that they understand relationships and appropriate relationships and all of those things that go along with it. And so we do full comprehensive sex education and I'm so proud of it. So proud of it. That's so we, can't, we can't leave without mentioning that. That's so important. I'm glad you bring that up. That is, yeah, you're right. It can be hard to get a comprehensive sex education, especially in some <laughs> yeah. more than other ones. And if you don't understand what it's supposed to look like, how are you going to know when it goes wrong? Right? Like, yeah, that's great. I like that you bring that up. You know, we, we I just want to add really quickly, we knew that was an important um, service that we could provide, but hearing um, some of the feedback from the students in those classes just um, brought home that it is needed more than ever. Make sure that they, um, that they stay healthy and, and are able to protect themselves with that information uh, moving forward in their lives. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed it. Thank and you for having us. Yeah. Happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our MHDD Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jill and Cheryl. All the resources mentioned in this episode, as well as English and Spanish transcripts of the episode, are linked in the show notes. If you like the content we provide, make sure to subscribe, listen, and share wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to follow us on social media at MHDD Center or visit our website at mhddcenter.org for more great information. Thank you and have a great day.